Zechariah chapter 10. If you're having trouble finding Zechariah, find the Gospels, the book of Matthew, and then go towards the front, about a dozen pages or so, and you'll be in Zechariah 10. Zechariah chapter 10. We'll be looking this morning at verses 6 through 12 of that chapter. Let me read that and then lead us in prayer. Zechariah 10, 6 through 12. God speaking says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them back because I have had compassion on them, and they will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Ephraim will be a mighty man. And their heart will be glad as if from wine. Indeed, their children will see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them to gather them together, for I have redeemed them. And they will be as numerous as they were before. When I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries. And they with their children will live and come back. I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. And he will pass through the sea of distress and strike the waves in the sea so that all the depths of the Nile will dry up and the pride of Assyria will be brought down and the scepter of Egypt will depart. And I will strengthen them in the Lord. And in His name, they will walk, declares the Lord. This is God's inerrant living Word. Would you bow with me? Our Father, we thank You this morning for this Word. We've read numerous passages in it, including in Sunday school and now here Our hearts have been pointed to you in multiple ways this morning. And we see the Ancient of Days as we have just sung. In His power, in His glory. And our hearts are moved to trust in you. And we thank you for it. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in this word. Thank you that we, while having the wonder of general revelation in creation and in our conscience, we thank you that you have given us far more of that than that through the special revelation of Jesus Christ and this word. And so as we hold this book in our hands, might you transform us and change us by it. And even as we pray that, our Father, we also pray for our brother, Pastor Keith, as he ministers in another church in our area this morning at Countryside Bible. And as he guides them, as he did yesterday and now this morning uh, in a couple of Sunday school classes, as he guides them through the understanding of forgiveness and reconciliation, might you give him wisdom and clarity that that church body would be built up 
even as we are built up, as we hear this word. And so would you make them and us to be responsive to this faithful word that you have given us. Might you be exalted as we preach and listen. And might you be exalted as we are transformed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There we go. Many years ago, a despondent-looking Charles Brown theologian extraordinaire commented to his friend Lucy, I feel inferior. Lucy hopefully responds, Oh, you shouldn't worry about that. Lots of people feel that way. Somewhat encouraged, Charles asks, What? They feel like they're inferior too? No! That you're inferior! Poor Charlie. In one of his final books, theologian J.I. Packer observes, What is weakness? The idea from first to last of weakness is of inadequacy. We're physically weak, intellectually weak, personally weak, relationally weak. Our bodies are broken, our minds are inadequate, our personalities lack resolve, and our relationships suffer. He concludes this way, every day finds us affirming the inadequacy of others at point after point. We're weak, unable, incapable. And in case we In case we need convincing of that, the scriptures talk regularly about the reality of the spiritual condition of God's people. And one of the analogies, one of the pictures that the scriptures continually use about what are God's people like is that it calls us sheep. Among the most intellectually challenged, strength impoverished, vulnerable animals God ever created. And that's us, intellectually weak, incapable of protecting ourselves. It is to paint the picture, we need help, all of us. We're weak. We need a guide. We need protection. And God has given people to protect His sheep. They're called shepherds, and they're to guide, and they're, and they're to instruct, and they're to... to cover and surround and lead to places of refuge and safety. And what we found last week is that there's a whole host of them historically in the land of Israel and even now today, a whole host of them, maybe even many of them, dare we say most of them, who are leading in ungodly ways. And instead of protecting, they're taking advantage of the sheep and manipulating and using them for perverse and self-serving reasons. And so the sheep wander, and the sheep are left unprotected, and the sheep suffer. We saw all that last week. And what we will see this week is that God, in spite of the weakness of shepherds to lead in ungodly ways, has not left His people unprotected. Yeah, we have false shepherds around us. It's always been that way, but God has provided the good shepherd, the Messiah, the shepherd king to be the eternal king of Israel and of all those who belong to him. And it is 
It is God's power and God's authority that will protect us. What we're going to find in these verses that I just read is this. God's power is manifested in the redemption of His people. God's power is manifested in the redemption of His people. Charles Spurgeon wrote on one occasion, If you ask where God's glory is most seen, I will not point to creation nor to providence, but to the raising of Jesus from the dead. And a corollary to that principle is that whenever God redeems anyone, the magnificence of His power is on full display. If you want to see God's glory, God's omnipotence, then look at His redeemed people. That's where His power is, particularly demonstrated to take those who are entrapped, ensnared, broken, weak, and transform them and to make them into His people, to liberate them from sin and to liberate them from the things that have entangled them and ensnared them and give them freedom to walk with Him and obey Him. That's His power. And what we're going to find this morning is a demonstration of God's power that will be demonstrated not only today in us, but ultimately at the end of the age as He saves His covenanted people and brings them into the land that He has promised to them. And what we'll find particularly are three manifestations of God's power in redeeming Israel. Three manifestations of God's power in the redemption of Israel. You'll remember from last week that at the beginning of Zechariah 10, that the prophet has exhorted the people to go to God in trust and faith. Remember that 10.1? Ask, pray, petition. Go to the one who is the shepherd king and ask him for what you need. Ask for rain at Uh, Ask for rain from the Lord at the time of the spring rain because it is the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain and vegetation in the field to each man. You ask, you go, you can trust him. Why? Because he is the shepherd king, the one chapter nine who has already come as king. And now in chapter 10 and following that we're going to find that will again come as ultimate king. Again, we've been reminded last week that there are shepherds who are going to come, who did come and who exist even today, who have have led people astray, who have led people away from the truth of Christ and the gospel, and they've led them to false idols, false places of refuge that will fail them. And this passage is a reminder that God will bring His people into the promised land. He will restore His people, despite their rebellion, despite their disobedience, He will restore them to the land. It's really a a fulfillment of the promise that was given way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, the promise to Moses. In those chapters, chapters 28 to 30 of Deuteronomy, Moses reminds the people through God's Word that, that if they obey, there will be blessing. And if they disobey, there will be cursing. And then at chapter 30, listen to what he says, starting in verse 1. So it shall be that when these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, 
and you return to the Lord and obey him with all of your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there He will bring you back. So way back in Deuteronomy 30, he says, if you wander, when you wander, and if you remember, he will bring you back, he'll put you in the land, he will restore you, and he will make all the promises come true that he has given to you. And this chapter anticipates the fulfillment of that promise. This restoration that God is going to work in the people of Israel is an astounding demonstration of God's limitless power. One of the things I always encourage folks to do when they're reading their Bibles and, you know, what, what, what did you get out of that? Well, not really sure. One of the things that you can do when you're reading the Bibles to try and drive home the point is to ask yourself the question, what does this passage teach me about God? Because the revelation of Scripture is the revelation of God. It's designed to tell us something about Him. And what we find in this passage is a pervasive emphasis on the power and authority of God to act. We see it right at the beginning in verse 6. He says, I will strengthen the house. I will save the house. I will Bring them back because I am the Lord their God. Verse 8, I will whistle for them and gather them. Verse 10, I will bring them back from the land. I will bring them into the land of Gilead. Verse 11, he will pass through. And that's a reference, we'll see that in a moment, to God himself. And verse 12, I will strengthen them in the Lord. And then he buttons it all together at the end and says, declares the Lord. In other words, God has spoken and it can't be altered. And so God is acting. It's God's power. It's God's authority. And in case we miss the point of his strength, notice what he says. This emphasis on strength runs all the way through this passage. Verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah. So it's God's strength that's being worked into them. Verse 7, Ephraim will be like a mighty man. That word mighty is the same word as strength in verse 6. And it's a reminder as well that God again is making the ten northern tribes Ephraim strong. And then again verse 12, kind of buttoning up the whole passage. I will strengthen them in the Lord. It's God's strength, it's God's power, it's God's action. I will, I will, I will, my strength in them. You could almost say, amen, let's go home. Good job, preacher. But there's more in this passage that we want to unpack. Three manifestations of God's power in the redemption of Israel. First manifestation of God's power is that he will restore the nation. He will restore the nation. We find that in verses 6 and 7. I want you to notice, first of all, that God is acting on his own. He is doing for the nation, for the weak sheep of Israel, 
what they cannot do on their own. They're incapable, they're weak, they're broken, they're inadequate. And God is acting on their behalf. Notice the first two lines of verse 6. I will strengthen. And that little phrase, I will strengthen, is a phrase that is often used in military contexts. And it has the idea of providing strength for battle. It's a word of victory. It's a word of triumph. And so God is saying, I will bring the house of Judah to victory, to prominence, to triumph. And then in a parallel line, he says in the second line, I will save the house of Judah, of of Joseph. And that little phrase, I will save, is to be taken in parallel with the phrase, I will strengthen. That word save is the common word for salvation in the Old Testament. It's used hundreds of times and it is used both of spiritual and physical salvation. And the point here particularly is that Israel will be saved from their enemies. So they've, they, Israel has this, this relentless history of people being opposed to them, people trying to conquer them. And God says, at the end of the age, I will save them. And how will he save them? He says, the next line, I will bring them back. Back to where? Back to the land. I'll bring them back into the land. And we're going to see that particularly in verses 9 and 10. And what we find in these opening lines of verse 6, particularly, is that God is acting for His people. God, the Messianic shepherd king, will personally act for His people. He has taken the initiative He has made the plan. He has provided the power. And he is interjecting himself into their lives, acting personally for them. It is a reminder, brothers and sisters, that God cares for his people. He is not dispassionate. He is not ambivalent to your struggles, to your weights, to your pressures, to the burdens. I said it yesterday at Sonny's memorial. He knows and he cares. He's coming alongside you in that knowledge to care for you. God is acting. God is acting on his own. He needs no other one to help him. But he is sufficient. I want you to notice as well why he acts. Why does he act? Again, verse 6, middle of the verse. Because. So he says three times, I will, I will, I will. Why? Because I had compassion on them. Or compassion refers to the pity that God has towards us. He sees Israel's neediness. He sees their brokenness. And it moves him to act. You think about the Good Samaritan, right? The parable of Jesus. And the first two who walk by and they're dispassionate. They see the trouble. They acknowledge the trouble that the man is in who has been attacked by thieves and robbers. And they just keep on going. Not because they don't understand the situation, but because they lack compassion. And the third man, the good Samaritan, comes by and he is moved by, moved to action by what he sees. That's the Lord. 
It's a reminder that God will not leave his children in their trials and griefs. It's interesting that this word compassion is often used about mothers and their care for their children. And a mother takes a child, child running along and falls and scrapes the knee. And the mother comes along and scoops that child up and cuddles that child and holds that child and doctors that child and prays with that child and band-aids that child. Dad comes along and says, ah, you'll be okay. Get up. Go on. Not a mom. Mom's compassionate. A mom is gentle and gracious. And that is exactly the way our God in heaven is. In our dark days, it is tempting to think that God is incapable or uncaring. And He is neither. He always looks on us, always sees our trouble, and is always moved to act for us. You can just move forward a few pages in your Bible to Matthew chapter 9, and you see the compassion of God exemplified in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Matthew nine thirty-five. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Why does he do that? Because he's compassionate. He cares. He's benevolent. And seeing the people, in case they don't understand what's going on, seeing the people, Matthew tells us, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. They need help and he is moved to their helplessness to help them and minister to them. It's tempting To think that God is uncaring. Oh, don't go there, friend. It is because of his compassion towards you that he will act. He acts, notice the end of this passage, because I am the Lord, their God, and I will answer them. He is Yahweh. As Yahweh, He is the covenant God. He is the one who has made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It is manifested again to Moses, to David, to Jeremiah. And He will act for them to keep His promises. And when they come to Him and say, Will you save? He will save. We found that in Romans chapter 11. A couple of years ago, when we were moving through that book, Romans 11, so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove all ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I've made a promise, and I must keep it, and he will. Why? He is the Lord their God. So he acts because he is compassionate. What does God do to save his people? Well, he protects them from their enemies. He protects Israel from all the invading armies. Again, we're going to see that in a particular way in verses 9 and 10. But even more than that, he restores the nation 
as one unified nation. Notice what he says at the beginning. He says, I will strengthen the house of Judah. Who's Judah? Well, Judah is one of the tribes of Israel, but it also became shorthand for saying the southern tribes that were taken into captivity in Babylon in 605, 597, and 586 B.C. And it's not just the tribe of Judah, but it's also the tribe of Benjamin, the two southern tribes, and then also um, partly the tribe of Simeon as well. And so it's those tribes, those dominantly two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that when he says the house of Judah, that's what he's talking about. In other words, the southern kingdom will be restored, but not just them. He also says, I will save the house of Joseph. And that's a really unusual phrase. It's it's used just a handful of times in the Old Testament. And it refers to the two sons of Joseph. Who are the sons of Joseph? Ephraim, Manasseh. Anything notable about Ephraim and Manasseh? Well, they are the two sons of Joseph who received a double blessing for Joseph's obedience in Egypt. And so there is no tribe of Joseph, though he's one of the twelve sons. Instead, there are two tribes with the name Joseph, as it were, Ephraim and Manasseh. Those two tribes became dominant among the ten tribes, the ten northern tribes. And so this is a shorthand way of saying the house of Joseph, saying the northern tribes will also be saved and also be restored. So when we put this together, what we find God is saying is, I'm going to save the southern kingdom, I'm going to save the northern kingdom, and I'm going to bring those kingdoms back together in one unified nation in the promised land of Israel. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to restore them. And notice he says, I will bring them back, the next to last line, verse 6, as though I had not rejected them. Now, there was a time when Israel was unified. So under Saul, David, and Solomon, the first three kings, yeah, it was a unified nation. But even then, it was always tenuous, wasn't it? There was always infighting and there was always political battling, even, even, even under their leadership. And then after the kingdom was divided after Solomon, it just stayed that way. And here God is saying, I'm bringing them back. I'm restoring them as if I had not rejected them, as if the 10 northern never went into captivity in Assyria in 721, and as if the southern tribes never went into captivity under Babylon in 605 and following, as if none of that ever happened, as if they never had to flee, as if they never had to fight, there will be safety and restoration. What is the result of God's action? That's verse 7. When God acts, Ephraim will be like a mighty man. Ephraim there, again, is just shorthand from God through the pen of Zechariah to refer to those ten northern tribes. Ephraim will be like a mighty man. Again, that's that same word as strengthen in verse 6. God will strengthen the nation and she will be strong. She was characterized by weakness. How weak? So weak that she couldn't defend herself and she was taken into captivity. And then they will be strengthened so that that will be their characteristic. We've already seen this in chapter 9, right? I will bend Judah as my bow and I will fill the bow with Ephraim. Again, both these two kingdoms within the nation of Israel united together as one nation. 
So they will be victorious. But not only will they have victory. Notice the middle of verse 7. They will have joy. And their heart will be glad as if from wine. He is not saying with that. Um, alcohol will make you happy. That's not his point. But he is drawing an illusion from alcohol and saying as alcohol controls a person, fills a person, dominates a person, in just that way, gladness will dominate those who are in the land when they're restored to the land. They're filled, controlled, dominated by gladness and joy. And the gladness is so pervasive. Notice he says in the next line, indeed, their children will see it and be glad. In other words, there's generational implication for when God brings his people into the land and the millennial kingdom. It's not just that generation that he brings in, but every generation that follows after them will also have that same kind of gladness and joy and fellowship with God. What's notable here as well is that he draws particular attention to the children. Why is that significant? Because in a time of war, who suffers the most? It's the children. The children who are particularly defenseless. The children who are particularly taken advantage of. The children particularly who don't, don't understand and can't defend themselves and can't reason. And he said, those who are most oppressed Within the population, those who suffer the most, those who are most vulnerable, will also have joy, satisfaction, gladness. So MacArthur says, the entire nation, from the oldest warrior to the youngest child, will be filled with triumphant exuberance. It's a reminder for the nation of Israel, whatever suffering they had, that there would be an end to the suffering. It would not persist. It would not remain. It would not continue. And we can learn from that as well. Whatever, any, whatever suffering any believer has at any given moment, and we all have some measure of suffering at all times because we live in this thing called a broken world. And whatever suffering we have, there is unending, full satisfying joy ahead. Don't look too much at the suffering here. Look at the joy behind it that is promised for all of God's people. John Newton wrote this. They who would always rejoice must derive their joy from a source which is invariably the same. In other words, from Jesus. Oh, that name. What a person, what an office, what a love, what a life, what a death. Does it recall to our minds? Come, let us leave our troubles to themselves for a while and let us walk to Golgotha and there take a view of his troubles, which is for our joy. So look to him. The first aspect of what we see in God's power is that he will restore the nation. Secondly, notice that we also see God's power in redeeming his people, redeeming his people. Verses eight and nine. 
So God takes the northern and the southern kingdom of Israel and he unifies them into one nation. But he also acts on behalf of the individual people within that nation and regathers them and redeems them. So he says in verse 8, God again still continuing to speak, I will whistle for them. Don't think God's whistling for his dog. That's not the image. That word whistle is translated in some versions as signal. I'll give the signal. And I will, by that signal, regather my people together. It's not just a whistle. It is, it is an authoritative call. It's a compelling call. It's, it's what Jesus alludes to in John chapter 10 as the great shepherd. He says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He gives the signal and they follow. And on that great day when the kingdom is reestablished again, he will give the signal and all of God's people will be regathered. Why? Because, verse 8, for I have redeemed them. The purpose of bringing them into the land is for the purpose of demonstrating his redemptive work on their lives. What does it mean to redeem? Simply means to buy back, to make a purchase, to purchase them particularly out of slavery and to make them useful. If you think about that, think about Onesimus um, in the book of Philemon, Philemon 10 and 11. And how he was redeemed and taken from a slave who was incapable and ineffective and made into one who was useful to Paul and to the Colossian church. God purchased Israel out of slavery to Egypt. And he will purchase Israel out of slavery and make her useful for his eternal purposes. Brothers and sisters, this idea of redemption is glorious for the nation of Israel because there's coming a day when when they're going to go into their land as a nation. But that act of redemption is not just an Old Testament idea. It's relevant to us today as well. And if we are not followers of Jesus, the Bible says that we are enslaved to sin. But Jesus Christ came to earth and lived a perfect life, fulfilled every aspect of the law fulfilled all of the righteousness that God demanded in the law. And then as that sinless, perfectly righteous man went to the cross, not because of his own sin, but he died in our place, in our stead, so that when we believe in him, that righteousness that he demonstrated in his earthly life could be imputed and accounted to us. And when that righteousness is imputed to us, we are liberated from sin, liberated from The penalty of sin, death, and liberated from the power of sin. So now we can do good things. That's redemption. He buys us out of sin and equips us to do good things. His redemptive power is such that until until we take that, until we see him take that which was our condemnation and turn it into something that is beneficial, we probably haven't been redeemed because that's what he does. He takes our brokenness and he heals it and he makes it useful. 
That's redemption. And my friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, and if you've never experienced that redemptive power, oh, you must. You must respond in faith to Christ. And I appeal to you, would you trust Him to free you from the sin that has ensnared you? And if you have questions about that, ask the person you came with or ask the person sitting next to you or talk to me on your way out. And we'd love to give you more information about how to trust in Christ as your Savior. I want you to notice one other thing about God's power to redeem His people. Notice this in verse 9. When I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries. Their rebellion against God, sent them to the far corners of the earth. They were among all the nations of the earth. That We find that in Deuteronomy chapter 28. They were scattered by God. In other words, God, God didn't just scatter them. The word here is not just scatter, but it's so. So God dispenses them, dispels them, casts them out, and sends them all over the earth like casting seed. And when they are there, Carl, like the prodigal son, And when they are there in the far country and then they remember the father that they have and they repent and they come back, he says, then I will bring them back and they will live. God will restore them. Their suffering was discipline, but friends, it was corrective discipline. So that they could remember, so that they could come back, so that they could be restored. This redemption is for the nation. But notice the end of verse 9. They will come back. The individuals will come back. It's not just, it's not just the people in general, but it's the people in particular. And they will come back and they will come back with their particular children and they will live. This means that not just a few individual Jews will trust in Christ, but that the nation will repent and the nation will experience the blessings of the millennial kingdom. And then every successive generation, again, will be enfolded into that blessing. It's reiterating that idea that we saw back in verse 7, that the children also will enjoy the blessing. Oh, this had to be so helpful and so hopeful for the readers of Zechariah's prophecy, because even though they were back in the land, they'd returned from Babylon, they still had opposition. Not every individual had been restored. The nation still didn't have all of the covenantal blessings. And God says, I'm going to keep my promise. You will come back. And it's his power that will accomplish that redemption of the people and to the land. Third demonstration of God's power. He will revive his people. He will revive his people. Notice he says this in verse 10. I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and I will gather them from the land of Assyria. Where was Egypt? Egypt was to the south. Where was Assyria? Assyria was to the east, but the only way to get to Assyria was to go north and then east. Or if Assyria was coming, they would go west and then come from the north down and so if israel was going to be attacked they were going to be attacked either from the north or the south and when he says assyria and egypt he's saying whatever the nation is 
Whatever the problem has been, wherever the captivity has come from, wherever the oppression has come from, I will take care of it and I will bring you back from those places. And he will bring them back to such an extent that they will come and no room will be found for them. They will absolutely overflow the bounds of the nations of of the nation of Israel. And particularly, he notes there in verse 10, I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon. Where Gilead and Lebanon? I'm glad you asked. I brought a map with me. And just to orient you, that little arrow is pointing, pointing to the Sea of Galilee. So that's at the northern end of Israel. Straight out of the south of that sea is the Jordan River. And so the green and the brown are divided by the Jordan River. And that goes down into the Dead Sea at the bottom, which is the southern end of the nation of Israel. Gilead is this area, the Transjordan, on the other side of the Jordan and then north. So it's it's west, north, or excuse me, east, northeast of the land of Israel. And Lebanon is this area way to the north. What's significant is that while Israel possessed some of the land of Gilead, they didn't possess all of the land of Gilead. So when the 12 tribes came into the land, they divided everything up. Some of Gilead gets, uh, gets possessed, but not all of it. Now he says all of Gilead is possessed and beyond it, it's just, it's packed to the gills with people. And then all the land north in Lebanon. None of that land in Lebanon had been possessed by the nation. Now, all of that land had been promised to Abraham and following, but never had the nation of Israel possessed all of that land. And God says, when I bring the nation back, I will fulfill all my promises and the nation will possess the land in its entirety. And it's going to be filled to the gills. That's my paraphrase of what God has said. How will they get there? How they get into the land? Verse 11. And he will pass through the sea of distress. And what we find here, and this is why um, we read from Psalm 106 and 107 this morning, is just to get this, this imagery of water and what God does to save people who are in distress in water. And he's particularly pointing in this passage back to the exodus out of Egypt under Moses. And they got up to the Red Sea and they say, now what do we do? How do we get across this? God's brought us here only to kill us by the Egyptians who are bearing down on us. We have nowhere to go. What do we do? And God parts the water. They go through as if on dry land. Here come the Egyptians and he brings the water back and they all drown. They got to that place at the Red Sea And it was a distressing situation. And it's that that he alludes to when he says he will pass through the sea of distress. He'll walk through that which provokes to distress and trial, burden. He emphasizes the largeness of that problem and difficulty. Now, who is the one who is passing through the sea of distress. I mean, you would think, well, it's Israel passing through. But he uses a singular pronoun. He, an individual. Who's the he that passes through? I think it's clearly 
a reference to God Himself. Notice the next phrase. He will pass through and strike the waves in the sea. Who is the one that is capable of taking the sea and making the sea stand up? Who is the one who is able to take the sea when he's in a boat and it's about to be capsized and drown all of the, all of the people within the boat and say, hush, be still, and the sea is dead calm? It's only God. It's God who is the one who dies, does that. It's God who makes the depths of the Nile to dry up. It's God who acts. And the imagery we are to see is that God is the one who is walking through the sea that is distressing to lead his people across. In other words, there's safety and there's refuge in this one who is leading them. And notice who will be destroyed in the process. The depths of the Nile will dry up. The natural disasters, if you will, will be eradicated, accounted for. And the political oppressors, the pride of Assyria, will be brought down. Assyria, who Israel could not resist on her own and took Israel into captivity, they will be brought down, they'll be made low, and the scepter of Egypt will depart. That refers to the powerlessness of both the government and the military. Their ability to stand and say, thus says Egypt's Pharaoh, and make it stand. It'll depart. I don't know if it made you think of it, it made me think about it this week. That idea of a scepter standing and persisting goes back to Jacob's prophecy, Genesis 49, Judah's lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up, gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion and as a lion who dares to rise him up, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Egypt's scepter goes down in destruction, and Judah's scepter stands in Christ. There's hope, there's confidence that God will bring back his people And what will be their blessing in the land? That's verse 12. I will strengthen them in the the Lord. Again, that's that same verb word we saw in verse 6. It's a reminder of God's personal provision for them, both individually and as a nation, to bring them into the land. And they get there based on His power. He's the one who strengthens. He's the one who equips. And the effect of his strengthening in them is that in his name, they will walk. Now that's a New Testament picture as well. You know, walk in, the, walk in the strength of the Lord. or You know, live your life according to the power and strength of the Lord. I think that's implied here. But also, those who walk in the land is a picture from chapter 1 of those who have dominion in the land and authority in the land. So they walk in the land under the authority of God and by the provision of God, not on their own strength, but under His strength. This is a regathering of the nation. Strengthened by God. 
empowered by God. What does this prophecy tell us about God? It tells us that the Messiah has come and He will come again as a shepherd king. It tells us that the Messiah will come with blessings and provisions so that He can be trusted. It tells us that false shepherds will come and entice His people with idols that they can never provide, that will never satisfy. And it tells us that the Messiah shepherd king is a sovereign, powerful God who will accomplish His promises and give His people everything they need Israel must look to Him for salvation. We must look to Him for salvation. In 1719, Isaac Watts published a collection of hymns called the Psalms of David. One of those hymns was a psalm based on Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord. A new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And that psalm is looking forward to this kingdom that Zechariah has prophesied of, that the Messiah will come and reign, and, and not just Israel, but all of the nations will see that and sing with joy. More than a hundred years later, that hymn received its fourth and final tune, a tune that we still use to sing that song on Psalm 98. In 1911, a version of that song was recorded and it particularly popularized that song. Somewhere along the line, don't know where, this song about the second coming began to be sung about the first coming of Christ. Though the birth of Christ is never mentioned in the hymn, though the birth of Christ is not alluded to in the psalm, You have sung this song many times and know it as joy to the world. It's not a Christmas song. It's a second coming of Jesus song. It's a song that elucidates the power of God to redeem his people and all the nations. It is a reminder of God's authority, God's power, God's strength to fulfill all His promises. Our Father, we thank you for your power and authority, for we are incredibly weak, broken, inadequate, inferior. And you are everything that we need and everything that we are not. You have power and you have authority. To accomplish all of your redemptive purposes. And we thank you. And we thank you. For the joy. That that redemption brings. Not only to Israel. But to us as well. Might we find satisfaction in you this week. As we walk through our. Oppressive and. Difficult circumstances. The sea waves that batter us. In those circumstances, might we see 
the power of God and the glory of Christ for us and for all the nations. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.